One time I had a friend ask me, what makes you sing? What makes you sing? And I didn't really know what he meant. So I was like, I don't know, music, the radio. Um, but he meant something deeper. He meant like, what is it that, that causes your heart to just overflow, overflow with joy to the, to the point that you just, you can't help but sing? What is that? And if I'm honest, it's football, you know? Um, we have a, a song in Tennessee called Rocky Top. And I sing that whenever we uh, score a touchdown um, or hit a home run or make a three in, you know, late in the game. Um, it just comes out of me. And you can maybe relate to that with Bow Down to Washington, right? Uh, you've got a song that you might sing, maybe Pride that you just have, and it just, it overflows in song. Uh, maybe love is what makes you sing. You know, you and, you and your honey, you know, you've got a song, and y'all just, when that song comes on, man, you just start thinking back to, you know, your first dance or some romantic moment. When I hear the song Forever Like That by Ben Rector, it's just like, oh, Courtney, I love her, you know. Uh, it makes me sing. Uh, people... Um, something weird happens, I've noticed, now that I've got uh, little young uh, kids, when, when there's a baby, a lot of times somebody will just be holding the baby and we'll just start looking at the baby and we'll just start singing a song. And that doesn't happen really in any other you know, context where you're just like hanging out and somebody just starts singing, but it happens with a baby because there's something about this baby making eye contact that just like, what are you supposed to do? It just draws this song out of you, right? Um, there are things that make us sing. I wonder, does your faith make you sing? When you think about God, does it just cause you to just bubble up with a song? Does that happen? Isn't it interesting that so much of the church and so much of the Christian faith is centered around singing. Like you could go to different church services all over the world in different languages. And there would be lots of different customs, things that people wear and things that people do when they get together. But in almost every situation, there's going to be a time where people stand and sing why is that? Why is singing so central to Christianity? We even have an entire music industry that's just Christians writing songs. And we could be cynical about that. Some of that's just, you know, they know that there's some money there to be made. But why is there money to be made for Christians with music? Why is that a thing? It's interesting in Islam, there's actually a debate about whether or not singing is permissible in worship. Is it haram or not haram? Is what they debate. But in Christianity, singing is expected. Why? What makes us sing? Maybe, if you're anything like me, Life can have a way of stealing your song. 
Maybe you, when you start to feel stressed about things, your vision for, oh, this joyous, you know, singing thing starts to, and you, uh, you live your life like this, on a computer, hunched over, thinking about the next problem. Or maybe the guilt and shame that you feel over something that you've done has stolen your song. Or maybe the pain of just years being compounded on top of you has just caused your heart to grow cold. The book of Psalms and throughout the Bible has a simple message. And that is, there is reason to sing. And the reason transcends all the things of this earth. And the reason that we have to sing transcends all of our circumstances. We have reason to sing because we have a great God. And I think that one of the greatest things that the church could do to recapture our witness, to become compelling again. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you're like, what's the whole thing about? I think more than anything, what the church needs to, to get back is a right view of how great our God is. We have reason to sing, not because of the weather today, not because of UW's football team, not because of the Seahawks, not because of the Mariners, not because of how beautiful the Pacific Northwest is. We have reason to sing because there is a great God. And that's the point of Psalm 145. Psalm 145, this is on page 500 something, 551. If you have a Bible and want to follow along. Psalm 145 is a song of praise written by David. And in verses one through three, he introduces us to the whole point of the psalm. He says, I exalt you. I lift you up. I talk about how great you are. I, I exalt you, my God, the King. And I bless your name. That is, I want to do everything I can to make you happy, to just bless you forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. Why? Verse three. Because the Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Here's the point of Psalm 145. We have a great God, so we should worship greatly. We have a great God, so we should worship greatly. This God is so great, it says that his greatness is unsearchable. 
You can't Google his greatness. It's like the depths of the ocean. We don't even know what's down there. The Pacific Ocean is so freaking huge and we have no clue what kind of creatures might be hanging out down there. And what's even deeper than that is God's greatness. The stars, we could sooner count them. We just sang. We could sooner count the stars than name his greatness. It's like counting the grains of sand at the beach trying to capture his greatness. It's unsearchable. And there are certain things in life that are so great to not respond greatly is offensive. Yesterday, our house was this massive disaster because we had hung these shelves like two years ago and uh, we didn't put them in studs because at the time we didn't think we needed to. And then I noticed right before we went on vacation a few weeks ago that they were starting to come out, all right? And that's because I'm not the smartest guy around the house, okay? And so they started to fall and so we took them down. But that just meant that everything that was on the shelves was everywhere in the house. And the shelves were just laying in the floor and we've got kids running around. So there's just like, everything we own makes its way into our living space, you know, and just gets left everywhere. And so yesterday the house was like an absolute disaster. And um, I was outside doing a few things with the girls and I came back in and the whole house was straightened back up. Now, let me tell you what would have been completely offensive for me to walk in and be like, hey, babe, would you mind helping me with, um, no, wow, how did you pull this off? This is incredible. You're incredible. It would have been completely offensive for me to notice this great thing that Courtney has accomplished and just ignore it or go on without acknowledging it. And that is a small, minuscule representation of what God deserves for his greatness. We have a great God, so we should worship greatly. Well, what makes God so great? 10 things, 10 things. My hope is that we just take a big bucket of water of God's greatness and we just soak you today with God's greatness. What makes God so great? 10 things. This is the outline for the sermon. Number one, his mighty actions. His mighty actions. Look at verse four. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty, your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your all-inspiring acts and will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will sing joyfully of your righteousness. 
God's works, what he's done, they're powerful and wondrous and inspiring. He spoke and he set the world's foundations. He brought order out of chaos just by speaking at creation. He created the sun, moon, and stars. He formed the oceans, rivers, lakes, and ponds. He designed flowers and trees and every type of vegetable. He constructed the birds and reptiles, the fish and marine life, every single animal. He created human beings and all of the multifaceted complexity that a human is. He created us simply by speaking. His word gives life. He spoke to Abraham and promised that you will have a child, even though you're old and even though your wife's old and y'all are practically dead, you're going to have a kid. And he did it. He grew Abraham's family into a great nation. He rescued that nation out of Egypt by humiliating the Egyptians with 10 plagues. He triumphed over Pharaoh, the greatest king in all the world at the Red Sea. He miraculously provided manna for his people in the wilderness and led them by cloud and fire and brought them into a land. He cleared out the land by marching around a city and just blowing a trumpet and the whole thing came crashing down. His works are powerful. There is nothing our God can't do. And he is still the Lord Almighty. Are you facing an impossible obstacle? Are you trapped in a prison or trapped in a storm? Are you walking towards a tomb? God is greater. Whatever your greatest threat, God is greater. Even into the grave, what will we sink? Christ, he lives. There is nothing our God can't do. What a great God we have. So we should worship greatly. Number two. God's majesty makes him great. Look at verse five. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty. What does the word majesty mean? It just means God is beautiful. He's brilliant. He's clothed with splendor and glory. In Ezekiel chapter one, Ezekiel gets this vision of God and he says, there was a brilliant light all around him, like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. When I saw it, I fell face down. It was so bright, so beautiful. He couldn't help himself. He just had to fall down. A theologian named R.C. Sproul once wrote, I'm afraid that the idea of the beauty of God has been all but eclipsed in our contemporary culture, both in the secular community and in the church as well. 
I've said many times that there are three dimensions of the Christian life that the scriptures are concerned about. The good, the true, and the beautiful. Yet we tend to cut off the third from the other two. Do you think that's true? As a church, like we care about morality. We care about truth, goodness, truth, but beauty? And yet God, when he was giving instructions to his people in the Old Testament about how he wanted to be worshiped, he's got pretty specific instructions, you may remember, about how he wanted the tabernacle to be built. And he didn't just like, well, lump it together because it doesn't really matter. It only really matters what's in your heart. And so just bring it in and just, ah, who cares about the architecture and the design and the furniture that we pick? And it doesn't really matter. Just throw it together and get in there. No, he cared about what it looked like because God is beautiful. And anytime we experience something beautiful, it should direct our attention and stir our affections for God because all things beautiful find their source in the character of God himself. God's beauty is like the sun setting over the ocean. It's like an aged bottle of wine. It's like the smell of Christmas. It's like the last day of school. It's like the laughter of your kids and grandkids. God's beauty is like a building or painting or photo that takes your breath away. It's like a song or a book or a movie that captivates you. Our God is great. So we should worship greatly. Number three. What makes God so great? God's righteousness. His righteousness. Look at verse seven. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will sing joyfully of your righteousness. Tim Mackey says that righteousness describes someone's character that you see demonstrated in how they treat other people in their relationships. So when the Old Testament speaks of God's righteousness, it's, it's speaking of the fact that God always treats people rightly, justly. He always does what's right by them. This means that God never takes advantage of people. He never mistreats people. While the world's power brokers may be full of corruption, God always treats people rightly. This means that the person with the most power and authority in the universe is also trustworthy. Our God is great. So we should worship greatly. Number four, God is great because of God's grace. Look at verse eight. The Lord is gracious. Look at verse 13. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions, kind in all his actions. God's grace refers to his incredible generosity towards us. It's God giving us good gifts not because we're great, but because he's great. 
in God's grace won't really captivate you until you realize that your sin is killing you. As long as we think of ourselves as basically good people who occasionally mess up, we won't be moved by God's grace. Of course, God should give us good stuff. We're pretty good. We deserve it. But God's grace is powerful and heart-changing when we recognize that actually our hearts are dark. In the light, our hearts are as dark as anyone's. When we realize that we are desperately wicked, drowning in our sins and sinking towards eternal misery, God's grace will become our most cherished prize. Romans 3, 23 and 24 capture this dynamic. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. We are sinners who disobey and dishonor God. And God would be perfectly righteous, which he is righteous. He would be perfectly right to condemn us to hell for all of eternity. But God is great and gracious. And so here's what else is true. All have sinned but they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word justified means righteous. We are not righteous. God is righteous. That is, he always acts rightly towards us, but we are not righteous. We don't always act rightly towards God or towards our neighbor. But we can be made righteous. We can be made right with God. And we can be made right with our neighbor. How? By his grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Even while we are sinners, God is generous to us. And in his great grace, he gives us his son. Jesus. And in Jesus, we find everything we need. God is great. So we should worship greatly. Number five, what makes God so great? God's compassion. Look again at verse eight. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Verse nine, the Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. God's compassion means that he cares about us. He cares about you. Think about that. When we're hurting, he cares. When we're sick, he cares. When we're lost, he cares. When we're stressed, he cares. He cares. Why on earth would the person with the most power, the most dignity, the most responsibility care about us? 
because he's great. A few weeks ago, uh, we took an early morning uh, trip to Target because the girls woke up and we were like, we got some stuff we want to get done. So we go to Target and I've got my little coffee mug with me. And somewhere along the way in the store, I was looking at something and I set my coffee mug down. And I didn't realize till we had already left that area of the store. And then I couldn't find it. And so I'm like, you know, oh, it's not that big of a deal, except that it's this really nice mug that apparently Courtney got for free and she didn't want to lose. And so then I was like, never mind, we got to find it. Um, and so I, I start looking through the store and, you know, we're going over and over and over. And finally we took the girls back to the car and I went back in just to look by myself one time. And I was, you know, we were asking customer service and yada, yada. And so then I start praying, God, would you help me find this little coffee mug? Um, but here's how sick my little heart is, okay? There was something else that I had already been praying about that week that I really wanted God to do. And so after I prayed, God, help me find this coffee mug, I said to myself and to God, I said, but wait, if it, but if you're only gonna give me one of these things, I don't want it to be the coffee mug, okay? <laughs> So I don't, if you're only going to answer one prayer this week, I don't want to waste it on the coffee mug, okay? So, so give me this other thing more, okay? I just want to clarify, this is what I care about more, okay? Now, here's why that's a sick little thing in my heart, okay? Because it assumes that God is not compassionate. He doesn't really care, Look, he's, okay, he's going to twist, you know, his arms twisted every once in a while. He's got to give me something. But I'm like, so wait a minute, stop. I'm only going to get one good thing from you. That is not the way our God is. He's not punitive. He's not, you know, well, I'm keeping tally of the, the things that, let me calculate if you are owed this. That's not how our God is. He's greater than that. He's compassionate. So we should worship greatly. Number six, God is great because of his patience. Look at verse eight. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. He's slow to get angry. You've heard of someone being quick-tempered, haven't you? God is long-tempered. He's slow to anger. This is so different than us. We are in a hurry. If you're slow, you're a loser. We're quick to be offended. If you don't cancel someone, you're endorsing their every sin. We're quick to react. We need an immediate opinion and response to every news story. God is slow to anger. And why? For what purpose is he slow to anger? Is he weak? Is he a pushover? Is he indecisive? No. Second Peter verse, chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you. And here's why not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 
God wants even the most stubborn to come to their senses and come home. And sometimes that takes time. And so God is patient. What a great God he is. So we should worship greatly. Number seven, what makes God so great? God's faithful love. Look again at verse eight. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. His grace, compassion, and patience are evidence of his faithful love. God refuses to forsake his people. We may fail, but his love never fails. Our love may grow cold, but his love is a consuming fire. We are great sinners, but he is a greater savior. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more because he is faithful in love. David could trust God's faithful love because of what he knew about Israel's history. He knew the story of Abraham and how sinful he was and how God still blessed him. He knew the story of Moses and how sinful he and all the generation were and how God still blessed them. He knew the story of Joshua and Gideon and Samuel and how God had provided for his people and continually stuck with his people. He knew of God's faithful love in Israel's history. He also knew about God's faithful love in his own family. He'd heard the story of his great-grandmother, Ruth, marrying Boaz and how God had provided for them and been faithful to them. He had seen his dad be a respectable man and his dad's love in return for God's faithful love to him. He knew about that. And he knew about God's faithful love in his own life. David had seen God help him defeat Goliath. He had helped him escape Saul. He had experienced God's forgiveness for a number of gross, despicable sins. David knew of God's faithful love because of what he knew about the past, what he knew about his family, what he knew about his own life. But we can trust God's faithful love for even greater reasons. Because God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. Romans 8 says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Think about all of those categories. Can they separate you from God's love? No. Why? Because he's great. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a great God we have. So we should worship greatly. Number eight. His glorious kingdom makes him great. Look at verse 10. All you have made will thank you, Lord. 
the faithful will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. God's kingdom is the place where God will reign with his people. In the Old Testament, David, the one who's writing this psalm, David was promised that God's kingdom would be established through one of his sons. One of his sons would be a king who would reign over God's kingdom for all generations. Jesus showed up on the scene and said, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God will be fully established by the son of David, Jesus, when Jesus returns. Why is that good news? Why should you rejoice in that? Why should that cause you to worship greatly? Because it is a great kingdom. This is a place you want to be. If you've ever been frustrated about politics, that's because deep down inside of you, you want to be part of some type of nation or kingdom that is run well, that does things right. When Jesus returns, the kingdom of God will come and you'll want to be there. You've never seen traffic flow so well like it'll flow in this kingdom. You've never seen legislation that made so much sense. You've never seen justice roll like there will be in this kingdom. You've never seen equality like there will be in this kingdom. You've never seen peace like there will be in this kingdom. You've never seen health like there will be in this kingdom. You've never seen prosperity like there will be in this kingdom. When Jesus returns, all things will be made right. Every wrong will be righted. What a great God we have. So we should worship greatly. Number nine, God is great because of his universal provision. Verse 14, the Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is the unseen hand that provides for all creation. Every living thing is being held together by his word. There is nothing in the world he's not aware of, and he will personally sustain every atom as long as he wants to. The earth is spinning and the sun is shining because God told it to. Your heart is beating right now, pumping blood throughout your body because God said to do so. He's the unseen hand behind everything. There is not a detail that he is not concerned with. He counts all your freckles. He knows all your friends. What a great God he is. So we should worship greatly. Number 10, 
God is great because of God's salvation. Look at verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his acts. The Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. This verses 18 through 20 is such a great snapshot of how God's salvation works. Here's how God works his salvation for his people. First, he comes near to them. Second, he fulfills their longings. Third, he guards them. And fourth, he destroys the wicked. And this pattern is what we see most clearly in God's son, Jesus. He comes near to us, not in a cloud, not in a swoop down rescue mission, but in an embryo. He enters a womb. He becomes one of us. And he comes so that he can fulfill all of our longings. The love that we need, the safety that we need, the future that we need. Jesus comes and he fulfills every ultimate eternal desire. And he does it by making God available to us. Ultimately, what we need, but even what we want is to be one with God again. And Jesus comes so that that can happen. And then he guards us. He escorts us. He protects us until the last day when God will return to judge the living and the dead. This is how God's salvation works. And Jesus is the one who accomplishes it. He's done it by going to a cross and dying for sinners, by being raised from the dead, by ascending to heaven and promising someday to return to make all things right. What a great God we have. So we should worship greatly. How do we worship greatly? Look at the last verse, chapter 21. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. Do you know this God? Not could you recite the things we just said about him? But do you know him? Do you know him? My prayer for you is Ephesians chapter three, verses 18 through 19. I pray that you be able to comprehend with all the saints, what is the length and width, height and depth 
of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We have a great God. So let us worship greatly. Father, we praise you for your greatness. God, we want to declare your mighty acts to the next generation. Thank you for those who are serving right now in kids' classes and in middle school. Thank you for those who will serve next hour in kids' classes and in high school who are proclaiming your mighty acts to the next generation. God, we want to be faithful to do that. And God, we want to bless your name with our mouths. We want to speak of your goodness and greatness God, there is no song that's loud enough. And God, we want to be faithful to sing. It's your breath in our lungs. So would we pour out our praise? Oh, great is our God. So let our songs be endless.